Hello, welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. I'm Razia Iqbal. Our top story today takes us to Jerusalem, where Israeli police have removed all new security measures from the site of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Muslim leaders have called for an end to the boycott of the mosque. We'll be speaking to an Israeli minister, a Palestinian official and the UN special coordinator of the Middle East peace process. And is the doctor's advice to always take the full course of antibiotics actually based on science? Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered penicillin, mentioned in his speech this idea of not finishing your course is bad for development of resistance. It's just been taken as gospel ever since. Stay with us for that story and lots more coming up this hour. We begin, though, with the resolution of a story that has been bubbling away since mid-July in the city of Jerusalem and which was showing signs of escalating more widely in the region. The location? A potent cauldron that is a sensitive and holy site to both Jews and Muslims, known as Temple Mount to the Jews and as Haram al-Sharif to the Muslims. And the issue? Israel's decision to install new security measures at the entrance of Al-Aqsa after two Israeli policemen were killed by three assailants. The authorities say the men initiated the attack from inside the compound. The installation of metal detectors prompted protests and were replaced with cameras, which also did not satisfy Muslims who boycotted the area. Instead of praying in the mosque, they did so on the streets. It was a tense situation. Israeli police have now removed all new security measures and the situation has returned to what it was before July the 14th. Muslim officials say they're satisfied and that they'll urge worshippers to begin praying at the site again. Palestinians gathered outside Al-Aqsa Mosque to celebrate. The fate of the site is an emotional issue and many Palestinians, like Um Dia, hope it's a first step towards Israel giving up control. Thanks to God, it's a victory. And with God's help, we hope that a time will come in which we will see all of Jerusalem and Palestine free. Salim Amr from East Jerusalem expressed his gratitude, quoting from the Quran. This is a blessing from God. If you stand for God, God will help you in victory. The closer you are to God, God will help us. Abdul Azim Salhab is the head of the Waqf Council, a Jordanian-backed body that oversees the Muslim religious sites in Jerusalem. The destructive Israeli occupation tried to break the will of this nation, the Palestinian nation, and especially the people of Jerusalem, who all stood proudly together. And we want them to keep standing to defend the holy Al-Aqsa Mosque, outside the gates of the holy Al-Aqsa Mosque, and now, God willing, inside the gates of the holy Al-Aqsa Mosque. So some Palestinians seeing this as a victory. I've been speaking to Yuval Steinitz, who is a member of Israel's security cabinet and the Minister of National Infrastructure, Energy and Water Resources. Is this decision a climb down by the Israeli government? Look, uh, we took some countermeasures in order to enhance security in the region after a horrible terrorist attacks on uh, murdering two Israeli policemen. But when we realize that this is being used or actually abused in order to incite against Israel, against the Jews, uh, not just in the Palestinians' um, authority, but also in the wider Arab and uh, Muslim world, we have to reevaluate and uh, we will uh, consider 
other, maybe more sophisticated, less apparent, but not less efficient uh, countermeasure in order to enhance security for all visitors in the region, Muslims, Jews and Christians. In what way are you saying that this has been taken advantage of in the wider Arab world? Yes, of course. Uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe this was the initial plan of those three terrorists. Unfortunately, three young Israeli Arabs that were inspired by the ideology of ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda, you know, that um, Jews are infidels, um, uh, that, that Muslims should uh, sacrifice themselves for Allah. And they were trying to instigate a, a holy war between Muslim and Jews, maybe because between all Muslims and non-Muslims in the region. And uh, when we realize that this is the trend, we have to recalculate and to reevaluate uh, the situation. On the issue of the, the full removal of the security infrastructure, is there division inside the Israeli cabinet? We spoke to the Deputy Foreign Minister, Tsipi Holovetti, two days ago, and even after Israel had removed the first uh, infrastructure measures that had been imposed, she was saying that she believed that that was an error and that it was important to keep such measures in place. I think we have done the right thing. You know, sometimes you have to be courageous in order to reconsider your uh, position and to take maybe unpopular uh, decisions. This is the essence of leadership. You have to re-estimate and re-evaluate and to read the situation. And if our enemies, Hamas, uh, Islamic movement, and even the Palestinian Authority, unfortunately, even the Palestinian Authority, are using this terrible terrorist incidents and our necessary countermeasures uh, in order to incite against Israel, against Jews in general, you know, very strong, uh, even anti-Semitic kind of incitement. We have to defuse uh, this um, card and to consider other uh, measures in order to enhance security. But you, you talk about courageous leadership, but wasn't this just a miscalculation in terms of the sensitivity of the site in the first place? No. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to predict the unfolding events and the trends. It's not easy to take decisions. But my position was, you know, already one week ago that we have to defuse tension and to replace those metal detectors with other uh, means. That was uh, Yuval Steinitz, a member of Israel's security cabinet. So does the Palestinian Authority feel vindicated by this decision? Let's speak to Nasser Kudwa, who is the Media and Culture Commissioner of the ruling Fatah Party Central Committee and the former Palestinian representative at the United Nations. Uh, What's your reaction to this decision uh, by Israel to withdraw all of this new security apparatus, the metal detectors and the cameras? Well, I think what happened represents a huge achievement uh, for the Palestinian people, especially our people in Jerusalem who fought the Israeli attempt to create new facts to curtail and and hamper the free access of worshippers to uh, Al-Aqsa, the holy Al-Aqsa. And by the way, uh, these measures have nothing to do with, with security. This is a huge lie. Uh, this is part of a strategy, Israeli strategy, that is aimed 
at changing the situation uh, at Al-Haram Sharif and Al-Aqsa Mosque. And uh, the proof is, is very clear, including official statements by uh, some governmental, uh, governmental officials who claim crazy things such as Israeli sovereignty and Israeli ownership of, uh, of the whole place, uh, in addition, of course, to Israeli actions, Israeli measures... It, it is perfectly... I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir, but it, it's perfectly legitimate for the Israelis to want to see some security, isn't it? I mean, there were police officers who were killed just by this site. Yes, that's true. However, uh, these were killed by three uh, that came from Israel. Uh, no Palestinian faction or group had anything to do uh, with, with this. The attack uh, uh, attack was carried outside outside the Al Haram Sharif and Al Aqsa Mosque, and it has never been the case uh, that there was security danger or security threats within the compound within Al Haram Sharif and Al Aqsa Mosque. Okay, I might so add to that. Let, let let me just finish this. I might add to that that there was a telephone conversation between uh, President Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu during which. The president condemned the attack and requested the prime minister not to take any measure uh, uh, that might change the situation. And he promised, the prime minister promised to do precisely that. And unfortunately, he didn't keep his word. And we saw those measures that, again, had nothing to do with, with security, but they are part of a strategy of a scheme, Israeli scheme, that's very clear for everyone. OK, so, so the, the minister that I've just spoken to, Yuval Steinitz, he accused the Palestinian Authority of inciting violence against Israel. Is he right? Listen, this is insulting, insulting for every uh, Palestinian. Any human being under pressure, under, under discrimination, uh, subject to oppressive and oppressive policies and measures by foreign occupation that's being transformed into colonialism, has to react. They don't need incitement. They don't need any nodding from anybody. This is like accusing Palestinians of being subhumans. This is, this is outrageous. This is outrageous. Okay. No reason is needed for any Palestinian to reject Israeli policies and Israeli positions, especially with regard to Al-Aqsa and East Jerusalem, occupied East Jerusalem. We will leave it there. Nasser Kudwa uh, from the Palestinian Authority of uh, the Fatah Party Central Committee. Thank you for joining us live. Uh, we can stay in um, the region now and speak to our correspondent, Tom Bateman, who joins us live from Jerusalem. Uh, Tom, you've been out and about. Uh, has the tension been diffused in your view? Well, certainly it has in the old city of Jerusalem, there's no doubt. I mean, as you heard from some of the clips you were playing earlier, I've just returned from... Uh, from the old city, from that part of uh, that area, which is just outside Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount, uh, where all of the security, last remnants of security was dismantled overnight. And I mean, certainly among Palestinians, there was a mood of complete euphoria. People were embracing each other. There was spontaneous chanting from school children as we walked through some of those narrow streets in the sweltering heat. Uh, people were still praying outside at lunchtime and they were due to uh, go in for uh, later prayers Today, So I think, you know, uh, this has been claimed as a victory by uh, the Palestinian Authority and by Palestinians there. I think there's something else going on here, which is purely the practical politics that surround this on both sides. And on the one hand, you had 
Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, by the right wing of his coalition, being urged not to uh, back down over this, to keep the security measures in place. Meanwhile, President Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, uh, it seems was trying to hold steadfast too earlier in the week and to, sh to show that he was patriotic up against uh, Hamas, uh, the other uh, faction in the Palestinian, among, among Palestinians uh, who were talking about what was going on. So I think we had then international pressure really on both sides to show willing, to show that they could uh, compromise. And in the end, we've had this solution. Tom Bateman, our correspondent, joining us live in Jerusalem. We'll be returning to the story in about 20 minutes uh, when we'll be hearing from Nikolai Mladenov, who is the UN Special Coordinator of the Middle East Peace Process in Jerusalem. Don't go away. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal. This is NewsHour. Still to come, how the new international concepts of transgender identity are threatening Pakistan's ancient culture. Hi, this is me, Kami Chaudhary, and I am 27-year-old, and I was born in Karachi, raised in Karachi. Basically, I love Karachi because Karachi is all about love. I am very public, and people are always talking about Kami, and that kind of, like, celebrity status, it's come from my God, what I believe. Stay with us for that report from Pakistan. Our top story this hour, Muslim leaders have called for an end to the boycott of Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem after Israel removed all new security infrastructure from the site. And two Swedish ministers have resigned following a huge leak of confidential information. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal. To political turmoil in Venezuela now, the president, Nicolas Maduro, has rejected sanctions imposed by the US against 13 of his most senior political and military officials, calling them illegal. Meanwhile, internal protest against him continues as Venezuelans beginning the second day of a general strike called by the opposition. They are against government plans to have a new constituent assembly elected this Sunday. So who are the people hoping to bring about political change? Vladimir Hernandez reports now from Caracas. Prayers before the storm. This group of young protesters, some in their early teens, comes together in a circle to pray ahead of yet another anti-government protest in Caracas. They've been going on almost every day since April. Almost a hundred people have died in them and thousands have been arrested. No wonder they feel the need to pray. Within these protests, there is a group of young men and women who call themselves the resistance. Even if I die, it's worth it. How long is this going to go on for? We're a hungry country. If you want to find out who's behind a demonstration, head to a university. I was a student here myself. In my day, we were protesting against the rise in the bus fare. Today, it's a rather more desperate story. Many of the students in the resistance shy away from the media to avoid unwanted exposure. 
but a group of them has agreed to meet me, only after many days of talks to win their trust. Rafael is one of them. We have changed their voices to protect them. The way I see it, the resistance is everybody who is against the regime. Many people see it as a dictatorship, and if you look at what they're doing, that's what it is, really. At the moment, they are even trying to change our constitution, which is what all our ancestors fought for. Cecilia, not her real name, is also part of it. I think the resistance is those people who come out to protest and who are willing to take the lead to confront the police or the National Guard. Many of the students I met told me they came from working-class sectors who've been severely hit by the economic collapse in Venezuela. One of them told me how his grandmother had died after not finding the drugs she needed. But the Venezuelan government has called them terrorists and accuses them of staging a coup to topple President Maduro. Jose, another student who we can't identify by his real name, rejects this. Some have labelled us as terrorists. But I think that all of us youth who make up the resistance are brave fighters. We are defending our people from the government's brutal repression. Venezuela's state attorney, Luisa Ortega Diaz, has said that the government's response to the protests has been out of proportion. She's now bearing the brunt of the government criticism for saying this. It seems to be that everyone here is a terrorist. But what I think is happening here is state terrorism. Thousands of students and demonstrators have been jailed in the last three months. Some of them have been put on trial in military courts and others have even been held by the intelligence services after a judge has ordered their release. I posed these issues to Freddy Bernal, a Venezuelan high-ranking minister who gave a rare interview to the BBC. Han muerto, asesinados en las there have been more than a hundred people killed in street protests, but out of these, almost 20 are National Guardsmen or policemen, killed with homemade rocket launchers. Why has the Attorney General not made any comment about this? I wouldn't hesitate to say that Mrs Ortega Diaz is responsible, through dereliction of duty, for the deaths that have occurred on the streets of Caracas. Not only have there been protests on a regular basis in Caracas, there have also been vigils, like this one, to remember the fallen in the anti-government protests. But also on people's minds here is what will happen on Sunday. The government's proposed election to elect the members of a new assembly that will rewrite the constitution. For the opposition, it will strengthen President Maduro's grip on power, which is why they want their country's leader to call for fresh elections. That was uh, Vladimir Hernandez reporting from Caracas. Now, doctors all over the world have been taught for generations that patients should complete the course of antibiotics to avoid bacteria developing resistance. But now a group of scientists have published a paper in the British Medical Journal saying the advice is not backed by evidence and should be re-examined. Tim Pito is Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Oxford Biomedical Research Centre and one of the authors. So, first, where does that advice come from? We didn't know to begin with. We rummaged around and my friend Martin Llewellyn found this Nobel Prize laureate speech, Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered penicillin. He made his speech in 1945, only a year or two after antibiotics were first started. And he mentioned in his speech this idea of not finishing your course is bad for development of resistance. Since then, the idea has got embedded 
And it's just been taking this gospel ever since. So it was in a completely different world of antibiotics, different world of use. And I don't think it's got any relevance to the modern world. Okay, so that historical context leads you to believe that there is no well-tested evidence that shows that it's necessary to take this full course to avoid resistance. Yes, and we wrote this piece as a challenge to the world to put it on the agenda. We think there's no evidence for it. So if there's no evidence for it, what conclusions are you then drawing? What it means is that when we come to the much more important issue about how long people should be given antibiotics for, for their own particular illness, like a sore throat or pneumonia, whatever it is, we want to find the best duration for that patient. And we want to do clinical trials, get clinical research to work out what the best optimum duration is. We don't want to worry about antibiotic resistance emerging because the duration is short rather than long. Clearly, there is the potential downside of completing the course. What evidence is there for that? There's going to be an unimportant side effect problem of taking them for too long. And then there's a second issue, which is the total amount of antibiotics used for humans and animals and everything. The more we give, the more antibiotic resistance you'll get and the less you give the less resistance you'll get so to reduce the amount of tonnage so to speak of antibiotics is a good thing in general terms if everybody halved the amount of days you took the antibiotics for you would halve the amount of tonnage of antibiotics given to humans does that then follow that doctors should start prescribing shorter courses we want to have a balance too long is bad too short is bad we want to get the best duration and we need research for that But you're not saying that patients should just make their own decisions. No, the purpose of the study was to speak to doctors to empower them to shorten courses for people on the basis of individual illness and their individual response to the treatment. But quite a lot of general practitioners are slightly concerned about the message that's coming from what you're saying. Okay, I mean, we aren't giving out policy documents for general practitioners or hospital doctors. That's not, we're scientists and researchers. Clearly, how you phrase the advice to doctors needs to be carefully thought through. Just put it into context for us, remind us why this whole area of antibiotics matters so much globally. Well, antibiotics have been a miracle cure for infection. It's transformed our lives from their discovery 70 years ago. And we can see resistance emerging. So we're not trying to prevent ill patients getting their treatment. All we want to do is we don't want to waste antibiotics unnecessarily. And that was Professor Tim Pito of the Infectious Diseases Department at the Oxford Biomedical Research Centre. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. Or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or try The Food Chain, our podcast for foodies, farmers and anyone who cares about what they eat and where it comes from. Coming up next, diplomacy in the Middle East. But first to Washington, D.C. He's barely been in the job for a week, but the White House Communications Director, Anthony Scaramucci, is already making his presence felt. There's an awful lot to talk about. Allegations about colluding with Russia during the campaign, efforts to repeal Obamacare and President Trump's tweets criticising his own Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. When my colleague Emily this caught up with Mr Scaramucci, she asked him first if Mr Sessions would be staying in office. Do I think he will say all the way up to the president? 
I think Jeff Sessions is. You'd like uh, to see him stay. Uh, would I like to see him stay? Again, it would be have to be up to the president. I don't. I don't want to interrupt whatever is ultimately going to be the outcome between Attorney General Sessions mm. and the president. Um, but what I would say to my colleagues here: have a tough exoskeleton, be a tough person with a strong backbone. At some point, they will meet. But does, Sarah does said that they that didn't meet yet. But does having that skeleton mean allowing the president of the United States to be rude to you, to call you beleaguered, to basically slag um, you off in a public um, forum? Okay, so you're from Great Britain, but I'm not from Great Britain. Okay, I'm 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 from a town that's right on the border of Queens. Mm. Okay, and the president grew up in Queens. Okay, so we have a little bit of a different communication style. It's a little bit more direct. It's probably a less subtle and polite. But you don't think that politicians in, in your hometown are hitting each other left and right? Now, they may be hitting each other in a more subtle way. I sort of like the more open approach. You know, one of the things I cannot stand about this town is the backstabbing that goes on here, okay? Where I grew up in the neighborhood I'm from, we're front stabbers. We'd like to tell you exactly <laughs> where we're from and what we're doing. And All so, right. let me ask you something. If you were running a campaign, and somebody called you up and said, we've got serious dirt on your opponent. It comes from Russia. Would you take that meeting? Well, I think I'm going to stand by what the president's remarks were that most people would take that meeting. I think what I have issue with is that all of us, myself included, were political neophytes back in June of last year. And so had uh, Donald J. Trump Jr., who's a dear personal friend of mine, and I can attest to all of your viewers, I know he's done absolutely nothing wrong, and he will be completely and totally exonerated. But you're saying he's naive. I didn't say he was naive. I said he was inexperienced. There's a difference between naivete, which is simplicity and some level of stupidity, and inexperience, which is, okay, this, this is something I have some curiosity about and I'm going to Why take the meeting. Why wouldn't you ask advice then? Why wouldn't you go to somebody who wasn't inexperienced because, and say, should I take this meeting we with running, Russians? We were running. You have to think about how phenomenal this movement was. We were running a campaign with a skeletal staff. We spent less than two-thirds of what Secretary Clinton spent. Uh, we had a very small local operations. She had thousands of people all over the country. you got to think about how upset the United States people are, the middle-class people. You know, when I came back from your beautiful city in London, I was with the dean of the Harvard Law School, and she said, well, why did, why did they Brexit? All of the elites that I just met with in London said they were never going to Brexit. And I looked at her, I said, have you been to a Bernie Sanders rally, dean? Have you been to a Donald J. Trump rally? That'll explain everything you need to know about to the discontent. Last question to you. You've Over been in the job less than a week. Yeah, Give us a days. sense of, of how it feels. What is it like being I'm, right in the center of the White House? I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, okay? I love my country. Um, I told people at a press conference last week that people work with me. No one has ever worked for me. I'm about collaboration and getting the people around me to win. And that was White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci speaking to Emily Maitlis. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. Let's return to our top story now. The removal by Israel of security apparatus from a sensitive flashpoint in Jerusalem. Muslim leaders have called for an end to the boycott of Al-Aqsa Mosque after Israel removed those uh, security measures from the site, though the situation does remain tense. Earlier on today's programme, we heard from Yuval Steinitz, a member of the Israeli security cabinet. I think we have done the right thing. You know, sometimes you have to be courageous in order to reconsider your uh, position and to take maybe unpopular uh, decisions. This is the essence of leadership. Yuval Steinitz, a member of Israeli Security Cabinet. I've been speaking to Nikolai Mladenov, who is the UN Special Coordinator of the Middle East Peace Process in Jerusalem. First, was he pleased by the news today that all security measures have been removed? 
Yes, I'm very pleased. We expect to see later this afternoon Muslim worshippers returning to the compound to pray, and we hope the real test will be tomorrow to go through Friday prayers with no incidents. I think that is when we would be able to really say that the crisis is behind us. What happened over the last couple of days is that we've seen is a growing realization in Israel that if these measures that had been placed after the incident on the 14th of July were not removed, tensions would be exacerbated, not just in the old city, but across the whole region. So it's very important to make sure that the situation is diffused over the next couple of days. That's the key. So tell me who has been responsible for resolving it. What's been the UN's involvement? I think the real credit for this must go to the Israeli and Jordanian authorities for their full cooperation and coordination that they have on issues related to Jerusalem and everybody else around them. In a headline story in the Jerusalem Post, the Saudi government is saying that uh, it was King Salman's intervention that led to the resolution. Well, what I think is really important is that the situation has been resolved. We've all really worked very hard to help, and that includes everyone from the outside, and including the United States and our partners in the Quartet, Russia, the European Union, the UN, the Secretary General has been very much involved in this issue himself personally. But really, I think for the looking forward to the future and really to reflect the emotions on the ground, we must say that this issue stays with the Jordanians and the Israelis. It's not a time now to sort of hand out medals for who has the responsibility for and diffusing the situation. What is important is that the situation has been diffused and that we should um, look to it calming down in the next couple of days. Is it your view that the, it was a, an overreaction by the Israeli authorities to install the metal detectors in the first place? Well, I think they had a legitimate concern because this incident, which happened on the 14th of July, was quite new, quite different from all other previous incidents. And certainly they have a responsibility to ensure the safety and the security of worshippers and visitors to the holy sites. However, how they do that is an issue that has been widely discussed in Israeli and Palestinian media. I think it's important to make sure that as new security measures um, in the future are being discussed, that that happens in a process of consultation with all um, stakeholders, because Jerusalem is ex an extremely sensitive city. And it's not just a matter of looking at what is the letter of the law on how things should be done on the ground. It's also a matter of looking at what is the spirit, what are the tensions that exist, what are the religious emotions that can be stirred up quite easily for billions of people here. Well, you say you understand why the Israelis did what they did, that they had legitimate concerns, but you also said that the Israelis realised that this could have escalated well beyond the city itself. Do you think that they don't understand that and haven't understood it? And do they understand it now that the potency of or the fate of this site is so emotional and it is at the heart of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians that they miscalculated? Firstly, I think everybody who lives in Jerusalem understands the extreme sensitivity of the situation here. And I think the fact that these measures were rolled back reflects that understanding on all sides. Secondly, I would tend to a little bit disagree with you with your statement that this is really at the heart of the conflict, because at the end of the day, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a national conflict. It is the conflict between two peoples who have legitimate national aspirations for statehood. And if I may be a little blunt about it, we'd like to keep it that way. We don't want to turn this into a religious conflict. That would be extremely dangerous. And that's where the potency of the situation here 
really becomes apparent. Therefore, I think that the fact that at this time, this crisis was handled in a manner that we are now looking at how diffusing it quickly is a reflection of that understanding. That was the UN Special Coordinator of the Middle East Peace Process, Nikolai Mladenov. Japan now, and in a surprise move, the leader of the country's main opposition party has announced her resignation after less than a year in the job. Renho, she goes by only one name, became the Democratic Party's first female leader when she won a leadership election in September last year. But support for her party remains low, despite a recent drop in support for the administration of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Rupert Wingfield-Hayes, our correspondent in Tokyo, has been telling me what led to Renho's resignation. Well, it's really because of recent election results, which have been terrible for her party, particularly the recent Tokyo uh, Assembly elections, uh, where the opposition party took just five out of 120-something seats in the the Assembly, which was basically decimation. So although the, the current ruling party, the LDP, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's party, also did very badly in those elections, her party did even worse. And what are we to make of of both those parties doing badly then in the context of of what uh, people think about Japanese politics? Well, people have a pretty low opinion of uh, Japanese uh, political parties and Japanese politicians. But we've also seen that what's interesting is the sort of rise of an insurgent party led by the governor of Tokyo, Yuriko Koike. She is very popular in Tokyo. She won the Tokyo governorship last year by a landslide. Her party then went on to win uh, the recent uh, assembly elections. So uh, certainly in Tokyo, uh, she is a very major political figure now. She says she's going to set up a nationwide political organization to fight the next general election. Uh, So this is, you know, actually a really interesting development. We've seen one woman fail in leadership and we've seen another who seems to be succeeding. When we look at how successful Yuriko Koike has been, is she being talked about as somebody who could at least uh, go further and, and, and possibly give Shinzo Abe a run for his money? Very much so. She has been talked about for some time now as a possible future prime minister. She's played an interesting game. She defected from the ruling LDP. She was one of Mr Abe's protégés. She left the LDP when she wasn't allowed to run by the party as the candidate for the Tokyo governorship, set up her own party. Uh, She could well... Japanese politics is very fluid, and there is every possibility that if she is seen by the LDP leadership as being a very strong candidate and they want to get rid of Mr Abe at some time, they may well invite her back into the party and she could run as the LDP leadership uh, leader for, for, for the prime ministership. So anything is possible in Japanese politics. People change sides all the time. And, and, and when we look at the main opposition party now then, who, who are the likely contenders who might step into Renho's uh, shoes? The short answer is I don't know, and I don't think anybody is sure. The party is in a mess. It's been in a mess since uh, its defeat in 2012. You know, again, it's a party that formed out of defectors from the from the ruling LDP. So one of its problems is it has too many chefs, uh, and they tend to fight each other an awful lot. It is a party that has failed to find strong unified leadership and to pre- present a strong alternative to the LDP. Our correspondent in Tokyo, Rupert Wingfield-Hayes. 
Now, it's two years since the height of the crisis, which was prompted by the huge movement of people in Europe, some fleeing conflict, others seeking to improve their lives. Time enough, then, for those hundreds of thousands who made it to different countries to start rebuilding new lives. Our Budapest correspondent, Nick Thorpe, has travelled to Germany to meet one Moroccan and one Iraqi asylum seeker to hear their experiences. It's a long time. I last saw Tariq in Athens in December 2015. He's 36, from Morocco, and was trying to head north from Greece through the Balkans, but kept getting caught in Macedonia and sent back. He finally made it to Austria and first applied for asylum there. For the past year, he's been in the German city of Cologne. My objective to be in Sweden, but what's happened in my way, a lot of problems. So I stopped temporarily here. Tariq and I have walked down from the railway station to the shore of the River Rhine, which flows through Cologne. If you come to Germany, ask for asylum, the government give you place to sleep, give you eat, and you give uh, pocket money. You cannot make anything for your future. Tariq has taken me to the former primary school where he lives with about a hundred other asylum seekers. Several are busy in the common kitchen, preparing the evening meal to break the Ramadan fast. Tariq is from western Morocco, not a refugee from war or persecution, just a young man wanting to make a better life for himself in Europe. An economic migrant then, with no chance of getting asylum. He's managed to stay this long in Germany by simply changing his name. Each time he gets a negative decision. To be legal in European countries is not easy. So if you get by asylum, directly they give negative for all North African without asking why, why you're coming. Only directly negative. From Cologne, I've travelled southwest to Ansbach in Bavaria to meet Omar from Mosul in Iraq. I last saw him in Serbia. I'm so happy because I started doing my, my language courses and I found that I was building, they're saying it's an education institute, two years. After that, I will be an engineering assistant for computer. Of all the refugees and migrants I visited in Germany, Omar is perhaps the best integrated. He has a German girlfriend and has learned the language well. A central role in his success has been played by Magda Kur, a retired German civil servant. There's people, whatever I will do in the future, I will not pay back what they did with me. Very so kind, you know, I love them. In July last year, a failed Syrian asylum seeker with mental health problems blew himself up during a music festival in Ansbach. Fifteen people were injured. The mass molesting of women in Cologne on the 31st of December 2015 and a series of other attacks have caused many Germans to reconsider their approach. Not Magda. Those were people who had lived in Germany for ages, but not refugees who had just arrived. The media made a lot of noise about it, but we still don't know exactly what really happened in Cologne. But there are limits to the German welcome. Omar has only been granted leave to stay for a year. If peace returns to Mosul, he might have to go back. While Syrians have been accepted, 
other nationalities have to try doubly hard to stand a chance of a permanent place in Germany. Nick Thorpe reporting from Germany. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story this hour. The Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas has welcomed Israel's decision to remove enhanced security from Al-Haram al-Sharif or Temple Mount. Earlier on this programme, Yuval Steinitz of the Israeli Security Cabinet told us about the incitement he claimed Israel was facing. Even the Palestinian Authority are using this terrible terrorist incidents and our necessary countermeasures uh, in order to incite against Israel, against Jews in general, you know, very strong, uh, even anti-Semitic kind of incitement, we have to defuse uh, this um, card and to consider other uh, measures in order to enhance security. That was uh, Yuval Steinitz of the Israeli Security Cabinet. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The Swedish Prime Minister, Stefan Löfven, has reshuffled his government in the wake of a scandal over a huge leak of confidential information. Two ministers have resigned. Earlier this month, it was revealed that sensitive information, including details of Swedish police and army vehicles, was sent abroad and could have ended up in the wrong hands. Matty Savage is a broadcaster and writer based in Stockholm and joins us now. Uh, Matty, the intelligence leak uh, has uh, caused a huge amount of trouble for uh, the Prime Minister's government. Just take us back and remind us a little bit more about it. Yeah, the press conference earlier came after a dramatic few days and weeks here in Sweden. Usually at this time of year, politicians are locked away in their summer houses in the archipelago, but they were all brought back after these revelations emerged about the extent of this huge data security breach that gave outsourced foreign IT workers in other parts of Europe access to millions of sensitive documents, including driving licenses and vehicle information. And the storm's got bigger in recent days, as it's been claimed that some senior ministers actually knew about this last year, but failed to tell the prime minister until January. That caused the main opposition parties to club together and call for a vote of no confidence in those ministers and led to a lot of speculation that there could even be a snap election. But in the end, uh, Prime Minister Stefan Levien said today that he wanted to reshape his government rather than send voters to the polls or allow the nation's opposition parties to try and form an alternative. He said the goal was avoiding political chaos, ensuring that Sweden stays focused on key concerns like security and Brexit. So two out of the three ministers at the heart of the scandal have been replaced in the reshuffle, uh, the Home Affairs and Infrastructure Ministers, but the Defence Minister, uh, also caught up in the scandal, has been kept on. And what's your your sense of it, given how much you've been following it? Is this uh, enough? Is it likely to bring stability? Well, looking through uh, the analysis here, I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, commentators are fairly split. Some argue that um, this should help dampen the pressure uh, from the nation's centre-right opposition parties, a kind of olive branch, because two out of three of the heads that they wanted to roll are rolling. But there is still the issue that the Minister of Defence remains uh, a minister. And so they may still push for a vote of uh, no confidence in him. Um, But others saying that this is a good sign 
sign in terms of reassuring the public that the, the government is sticking together, is focused on national security and doesn't want any kind of chaos. Um, but with a, a scheduled election just a year away from now, I think it's fair to say from all sides uh, that the government remains in a very fragile position. Okay. And this is also important internationally. I mean, Sweden is one of the most tech-savvy and digital countries on the planet. So the fact it outsourced its IT work and ended up in such a mess in the first place is going to do nothing for its global reputation. Maddie Savage, broadcaster and writer based in Stockholm, joining us live. Now, an increasingly high-profile global campaign for the rights of transgender people suffered a blow yesterday when President Trump tweeted that they wouldn't be allowed to serve in the US military. Thousands of miles in the other direction, for centuries, Pakistan has had its own third gender culture, a community identifying as neither male nor female, believed to be God's chosen people. Now, some in Pakistan say new international concepts of transgender identity are threatening their ancient culture. Mabin Azhar reports from Karachi. Hello, everyone, and assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much. Today is a Trans Visibility Day. In this university auditorium, Kami Chowdhury takes the stage. She's a transgender woman, and this is Transgender Visibility Day. Gender is in your head, and sex is between in your legs. I'm a transgender woman. This is Karachi, a city where societal norms are fiercely prescriptive, and where standing out can get you killed. Such campaigning might seem brave, but to many in Pakistan, Gender fluidity is nothing new. For centuries, Pakistani society has had its own answer for people who don't define their sex as either male or female. But that's now being challenged by people like Gami. Gami's rose petal lips and slick black hair are photoshoot ready. She's striking and has an entirely feminine frame, complete with newly emerging breasts. Hi, this is me, Kami Chaudhary, and I am 27-year-old, and I was born in Karachi, raised in Karachi. Basically, I love Karachi because Karachi is all about love. Do you think it's important for you personally to kind of push the boundaries? Yes, because we're educated enough. We have to do something like other people are doing in Pakistan. Nowadays, like so many people from like other cities, they are backbiting, they are writing about me. And Why do you think they see you as a threat or why do they need to write about you? Because I'm very public and people are always talking about Kami and that kind of like celebrity status, it's come from my God, what I believe. Gami stands out because she identifies as transgender, not as Khawaja Sera or third gender as is accepted here. The Khawaja Sera are an established part of South Asian culture. The community includes intersex people, eunuchs and those who identify as neither man nor woman. One of Karachi's most respected Khawaja Seras has invited me to a birthday party. An opportunity, perhaps, to understand the familial systems in the community. The community has traditionally made a living from dancing and singing, and tonight's party is all about performance. Soon, attention turns to family. Guru like uh, mom, dad. 
Guru is like mum and dad. They are our parents. Chela is like a child, a student, apprentice. There's eight of you in here. Do all eight of you have a guru? The guru is crucial to us because if you have a dispute or a problem, she will listen and mediate. We say, if you don't have a guru, you have nothing. I've met people in Karachi that say, we are not Khawaja Sera, we are transgender women, so we don't need a guru. How do you feel about that? They can't ever be women. They can't give birth to a child. If they say they don't accept gurus, then they are not from amongst us. In its 70th year of independence, the discourse around gender fluidity in Pakistan is more complicated than it's ever been before. The ability to choose gender outside of the established third gender system remains elusive and is almost exclusively the preserve of the privileged. That report from Karachi was by uh, Mobin Azhar. And uh, if you liked what you heard, you can hear more on this subject on the BBC World Service's assignment programme. That's it, though, for this edition of NewsHour. Only remains for me to thank you for your company this past hour. From me, Razia Iqbal, and the entire NewsHour team. Till the next time, bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.